Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, if you ever feel like government takes the pee, you will love this story in just a few minutes. Good morning. Roads aren't too bad today, actually. It's seven degrees out there, so the cold snap seems to have been fairly short. Coming up today, life after The Apprentice. As one Mullingar man appears on the programme, another reflects on how it helped his career ten years ago. Now, you know how smoking is bad for your heart. So is being overweight. So is taking no exercise. But could stress be worst of all? And why have plans for a €40 million factory stalled here in the Midlands? When you call 0818 300 103 is my number, you can text or you can get me on WhatsApp. 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Yeah, we go to this story first, actually, because it's my favourite. It's in the Star. Page 13 of the Star, if you're interested. Cunning creatures taking the pee in government HQ, it says. So, many reasons have forced pest controllers into Leinster House, and you can crack your own jokes as to why they might really go in there. Everything from a huge rat found in a car park to a fox who went in apparently through a window in the department of the Taoiseach and he peed all over the offices. So much so that because of the strong smell, they had to call in the cleaners and the exterminators. And according to the star, €65,000 was spent on pest control in Leinster House between January and November of last year. So, I'm sure there will be many memes created about that fox over the next couple of days. Front page of the star, though, Connor's sister visits cartel bagman. Connor McGregor's sister, Aoife, paid a stylish visit, it says, to cartel-linked criminal Graham the Wig Whelan at Portleash Prison yesterday. Not sure why that deserves front-page coverage, but there it is. You can read more if you wish. The Irish Independence' main story is that buy-to-rent giant now targets smaller cities. So, the company Iris Reit, um, it is looking at buying up different apartments and other properties in Cork, Limerick, Galway because previously they had concentrated on Dublin, but they now see opportunities in the smaller cities. And what the article speculates is soon they'll be looking at provincial towns as well, which will create further and further upward pressure on prices. It's the institutions that have the cash to splash when it comes to buying up properties. And on the Irish Times, the only COVID-related story, and it's not a bad one actually, on the front pages, Tens of thousands of cases not counted. So 
So because of the pressure on the PCR testing system over the last couple of weeks, officials expect as many as half a million cases may have taken place, but only a fraction of those were discovered. The reason I say that's not particularly bad news, if this Omicron variant is as mild as all the research seems to suggest it is, and certainly from the people I know of late who've picked it up, it has been not much worse than a head cold, quite frankly. Well, if it spreads and it spreads and it spreads, and it doesn't lead to an increase in hospitalisation or certainly an increase in ICU admission, then it is definitely milder than the variants that have gone before it. And building up some immunity wouldn't be a bad thing. But the problem, the main difficulty, is because of the close contact system, because of the requirement to isolate and restrict your movements. And if you're working in a sensitive area such as healthcare or in education, or, well, the list goes on, that's where it becomes problematic because you effectively end up with huge disruption to all those important services. Anyway, what is inside the papers this morning? Uh, Not actually bad news when it comes to the public finances, because despite the gloomy warnings 12 months ago that we could run a deficit of €20 billion in 2021, it was much, much smaller. Now, still a heck of a lot of money to lose, €7.5 euro, but tax receipts were way ahead of expectations, mainly because of employment rebounding as the year went on and as restrictions eased, but also consumer spending in the latter part of last year, again, stronger than expected. So, record tax receipts, €68.4 billion. Euro. For how long will it last? Fingers crossed. Now, the political controversy of the day involves Simon Coveney, the Foreign Affairs Minister, and it's this story that's been bubbling away, if you'll pardon the pun, for the last two weeks concerning champagne and a celebration in his Department of Foreign Affairs after Ireland's place on the UN Security Council was secured. And this was in June of 2020 at a time when... You weren't allowed to go to a funeral to mourn a loved one. You certainly weren't allowed to celebrate any occasion in your own life, not with champagne and not with colleagues and not in close quarters. So why did this happen under his nose? And it emerged that Mr Coveney, the minister, was in the building on the day, but according to his colleague and boss, Leo Varadkar, that wouldn't be unusual. It was a working day. The minister would naturally go in and out of the building, and he denies ever being at a champagne celebration. But there are others asking questions, such as the Social Democrats. They wish to know if Mr Coveney is presiding over a department with an arrogant culture that sees itself as above the behaviour expected of everybody else. Now, the sun carries many pictures and a report of the funeral yesterday in Castle Pollard of Saoirse Corrigan. She was just 21 years of age when, along with her partner Shane Gilchrist, the car they were travelling in collided with another vehicle on the N52 in Kells just a few days ago. It was New Year's Eve. She was remembered yesterday as a beautiful person, inside and out, and there were many tributes to her sporting interests as well, 
to her caring personality and to her good character. And the local priest of St. John the Baptist Church in County Westmeath, he opened the funeral, remembering the young school teacher and her life. And he said a number of items that remind us of Saoirse's life will be brought up, including her school diary, a green and yellow flag to represent her love of Ringtown and CFCW GAA clubs. Makeup was brought to the altar, a mobile phone, and a pint glass as well, symbolising the time she spent working in her local pub. But finally, a photo of Saoirse and Shane was brought to the altar, remembering their life together. So, that report in the sun today. Check if you have recently bought antigen tests that you do not have the Genrui brand. G-E-N-R-U-I. We talked about this yesterday, but since that discussion, the Health Products Regulatory Authority has now asked retailers to remove that brand of antigen test from shelves. So if you're in retail, if you're working in a shop, it's the Genrui brand. More than 550 complaints have now been received from people who said they were provided with false positive results. Genrui says it's working with its local agents and partners in Ireland to actively investigate how this happened. We shall see. Now, you know all of these risk factors when it comes to heart disease and stroke. Make sure you don't have high blood pressure. Watch your cholesterol. Don't smoke. Avoid diabetes. Don't become obese. Make sure you have plenty of physical activity in your life. The list goes on. But an article in the Irish Times this morning refers to a new study which suggests of all the risk factors, stress is number one. Chronic psychological stress may be as important and possibly more important to the health of your heart than any of those traditional factors I mentioned a moment ago. And the dilemma there is while you can perhaps cut out fatty foods or you can quit smoking or you can make time in the evening to go for a walk or go for a run or hit the gym, stress is not as easily eliminated. So, how do you try and put this learning into practice? If you're trying to make ends meet and financial stress is there in your life, you can't click your fingers and win the lotto. Likewise, if you've got some pressures from perhaps a loved one is unwell, maybe you've a bad boss. Again, all of these things are very hard to change. Anyway, we'll come back to that later. A story you'll hear about later today the trial of four people involved in the so-called Golfgate dinner begins this morning. They are former Fianna Fáil senator for County Westmeath, Donny Cassidy, along with independent TD Noel Grealish and hoteliers John and James Sweeney. So you'll hear reports from the court as the day goes on. And a final one for you. This is a rather eye-opening story in the Irish Independent when you think you've covered off all of the cyber crime risks in your life would you ever consider that maybe your robotic hoover is a problem let me explain these robotic hoovers have become very popular in the last couple of years 
and they do a damn good job. They will roam about the house on their own. Little sensors allow them to see where the obstacles are and provided you don't have, let's say, kids in the house and the floor is full of toys, if there aren't too many obstacles, it'll do quite a good job. And there are, are cameras on some of them. And according to this story, the cameras can be hacked. There was also a case, four years ago this was, where in a casino in North America, a sensor in a fish tank to monitor the water temperature, it was hacked, and because it was connected to the wider computer systems in the casino, the hackers were able to get all of the details of its customers. So the point the article is making is that if you are concerned about cybersecurity, you have to consider wherever the weak link in the chain might be, whether you're working in an office or whether you're just looking after your home security. You know, I remember a few years ago, Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook, he was photographed with his laptop in front of him and he had a piece of tape over the camera so that somebody couldn't see him. And I always thought that was telling. If a guy like that is being so cautious and some might suggest paranoid, well, there may be a lesson for all of us there. Question about the antigen tests, the Gen Rui brand, which are now being withdrawn from shelves. Caller says, if you bought 30 of them in a shop on Tuesday, are you entitled to get your money back? I would think so. You've got the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act. A product is meant to say what it does on the tin, and if it doesn't, well, you have a case for getting your money back. Absolutely. Will, why not let the population get Omicron? If this isn't as serious as the previous variants, surely that would build up immunity. Well, that's a question for an immunologist, but I hear a lot of people making that case. Maul asks, If it isn't so serious, though, why are so many in hospital? They may not be going into ICU, but they are in hospital. Is the Delta variant perhaps still causing problems, she wonders. And Will, as the kids go back to school... I have a major problem, says this listener, because they're sitting in a classroom that is absolutely freezing. And while I understand windows have to be open, my problem is two kids sent in this morning, 13 and 14 years of age, having to wear a school jacket, which is more equivalent to rags. You'd have more heat in a tea towel. Both of them go to different schools but I've been told by the principals they must wear these jackets and both of them are freezing and both have been sick many times because they've been so cold. It's not the end of that story, unfortunately, because while it may be a little warmer today, a more cold weather forecast in the next few days. The whole point of these CO2 detectors was perhaps the schools could be more judicious in when to open the windows and when to keep them closed, when to keep the heat in. Now, imagine you are on the cusp of setting a record. You are at the pinnacle of your sport and you're about to compete in a tournament where you are the favourite and your track record is impeccable. Enter COVID-19 and what is becoming a bit of a political storm. Robert Fahey is here from the Midlands 103 Sports Department. We're talking, of course, of Novak Djokovic. 
Yeah, very well set up, Will. So it's a really, this has been brewing for a while, though, because uh, Djokovic has throughout the pandemic, as I was saying to you off air there, refused to reveal his own vaccination status. He's, he's publicly criticised mandatory vaccination. He's weighed in on it on several occasions. He's had a lot of time in the build-up to this tournament. He knows the Australian isolation rules that you need to be there for 10 days quarantining beforehand if you want to play in the tournament, which starts on the January the 17th. So push was starting to come to shove and he was negotiating with the uh, Australian Open officials to see if he'd get a mandatory exemption based on his vaccination status. Eventually, he's the number one tennis player in the world. He's the biggest draw they have at the moment of the tournament. They seem to relent and say, OK, you can have your medical exemption to play. Come on over and do your isolation. So that kind of started the process on Tuesday morning. Djokovic posted a picture on his Twitter of him leaving to go to Australia, delighted with his medical exemption. Now, it's been reported that the medical exemption was based on the fact that he's previously contracted COVID-19 quite recently. Hmm. And though he would have... You He'd know, have immunity or antibodies or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But... It then emerged that when a member of his team was filing for the visa application that you need to do, they filed the wrong visa application, which doesn't qualify for a medical exemption. Then this created a bit more of a political storm. The Australian government got involved because it was creating a media storm back home. Why is this worldwide tennis player been given an exemption when no one else in Australia is able to, yada, yada, yada. And um, the Australian government weighed in, basically saying rules are rules and Novak is going to have to abide by them. His visa is going to be withdrawn. And this is why uh, the Australian Prime Minister, which you'll hear from now, has weighed in on the situation. Rules are rules. And there are no special cases. Entry with a visa requires double vaccination or a medical exemption. I'm advised that such an exemption was not in place. And as a result, he is subject to the same rule as anyone else. So that's Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister. Exactly. And uh, you see, it just rumbled on. So when, he, when Novak arrived then in Australia, um, he spent about eight hours being detained at Melbourne International Airport by Border Force Patrol. It's like an episode of Border Patrol that you'd watch on, on TV, you know. And then he was uh, subsequently moved to a, a quarantine hotel and told he was going to be deported. Now, he has taken a legal challenge against that, the first part of which uh, a snap hearing took place in the early hours of this morning in Australia. That's now been adjourned until Monday, which is going to uh, have a full hearing and we'll see where it goes from there. But That's like, in Australia. What's the reaction? in Serbia this is it there's been an absolute outcry of emotion the president has weighed in we'll get to what he said in a couple of minutes but we'll just take a listen now here's one of their most prominent sports journalists on what he's had to say on the situation Sanza Osmo to say to someone let's leave aside who he is and what he is but to say to a person okay you've been granted you can come and then you come and then they don't let you in it's a humiliation and it's a public humiliation in front of the world and this is the thing as well there was actually a a lot of uh, Serbian residents in Australia who had actually gone to the airport to welcome him. There was a band there and playing music and everything waiting for Novak to arrive to welcome him to Australia. They were all left and it was great TV in Australia. I've seen a clip that they were interviewed afterwards and such. But the reaction back home in, in Serbia, like the president, Alexander Vucic, he's made a stance clear. He's criticised it totally. He said, uh, I just finished a phone conversation with Novak Djokovic. This is what he, he said on Instagram last night. I told our Novak that the whole of Serbia is with them and that our, our authorities are taking all measures to stop the harassment of the best tennis player in the world in the shortest possible period. In accordance with all norms of international public law, Serbia will fight for Novak Djokovic for justice and truth. Now, we were talking about there just beforehand about uh, needing to be a UN diplomat. Well, the, mm. <laughs> that's where the situation is going very quickly. More closer to home, his father, 
had a very, very interesting uh, statement that he put out. Uh, he said last night, this is not a fight for the libertarian world. This is not just a fight for Novak, but a fight for the whole world. If they don't let him go in half an hour, we will gather on the street. This is a fight for everybody. And he also went on to say then tonight they can throw him in a dungeon. Tomorrow they can put him in chains. The truth is he is like water and water paves his own path. Novak is the Spartacus of the new world and won't tolerate injustice, colonialism and hypocrisy. So he's really going for uh, edge of the world, top heavy stuff there. It's escalating. A lot of people are waking up with headaches, no doubt. So what's at stake for him, sporting wise? This is it. He's on the cusp of making absolute sporting history and becoming arguably the, the greatest tennis player of all time if you go by totally Grand Slam so he's currently on 20 Grand Slams overall uh, Nova, or Roger Federer and uh, Rafa Nadal are both on 20 as well Novak Djokovic has won the Australian Open 8 of the last 11 years so with the emergence of like the younger players and stuff this might be one of the last chances he has to kind of surpass that 20 mm. mark and get to the, the highest mark of all time massive for him he's talked about from the outset from when he started catching Federer and the dial that this is his life's achievement this is his life's goal this is what he's always dreamed of doing and he wants to be known as the best of all time and this is his chance to do it so for him you could say everything is at stake because his whole career is at stake basically right um, we'll watch with interest to see what happens from those court uh, cases and I have a feeling the political realm could get very heated as well. So, Robbie, thanks very much for keeping us up to date. No problem, Will. Will, you're talking about stress and its link with heart health. Well, what about the recent stress caused by all the fear driven into people about COVID-19, mainly by leading politicians? And another person asks if the COVID variant Omicron is as mild as many studies show it to be, well, why isn't government following the science as they always suggest they do? Let's park that where it is for the moment, move on to something completely different. So if you're thinking of getting a tattoo, well, some colours, some pigments, will have to be taken off the market under what has been a grace period afforded by the European Union. That grace period is now coming to an end. Let's find out a little more about this. Joe Rossa is the manager and owner of Old Fort Piercing and Tattoo in Port Leash. Joe, thanks for taking our call. No problem. Thanks for having me. So this concerns um, two particular pigments. Can you tell us how important they would be? Um, well, they'd be extremely important, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so the ban is pretty much a blanket ban that covers a lot of chemicals. Um and what it really affects the most is green seven and blue fifteen. Um, for it, it does cover a lot of things, uh, but many of those do have replacements at the moment uh, that don't contain the chemicals. Uh, these two colours in particular, there is absolutely no replacement for them. Um, and another thing to understand is it's not just the green and the blue ink that will be affected; it's every ink that does contain those as base colours. Um, so what you're looking at is a very, very limited um, kind of palette of inks going forward. Um, and it's uh, it's making things difficult, <laughs> to be honest. Well, obviously, most of us are unfamiliar with the marketplace and how much access yeah. to alternatives you have. So I presume you've searched around and have you come up with many options? Um, well... There, there is a very, very small market there. Um, it's 
the inks and the needles are the only thing really in the tattoo industry that uh, the industry itself has control over. A lot of the supplies we use are medical supplies, which uh, over the past year and a half have like also increased in price, uh, as you can imagine. Um, and now there is alternatives out there, and they were kind of rushed through as well. Um, a lot of the new inks are at least double the price. And they're untested, they're unproven, and they're, like the development is rushed. So there's, um, it's kind of a risk in terms of the, the quality that we're providing, um, because we're used to a certain standard, and the inks that we've had have been proven over decades uh, of development uh, without any consequence. Um, the thing you have to understand there is. Over 3 billion people in the world have tattoos, and there's been zero cancer cases associated with them. Well, the EU seems to disagree. It considers these chemicals to be hazardous, yeah. and it, again, doesn't have sympathy in, in the sense they say the industry has had a year to prepare. Alternatives exist, except for the two pigments you mentioned earlier. Um and and how long might it take to develop an alternative for those two, or is it possible? It's hard to say, to be honest. Um, they, like they, there has been research and development uh, so far. There's been no results in that aspect. Um, and in terms of the research, the European Chemicals Agency said all the data was inconclusive. They didn't actually conduct research. They looked into data points, uh, and they found that Certain chemicals, it was because it was a blanket ban. Certain chemicals um, fall into the carcinogen category, but apples, onions, oranges, strawberries, lemons, mushrooms, all contain carcinogens, even bacon, and they're not being banned. There haven't been cancer deaths associated with fruits, as far as I'm aware, uh, and that's the case with tattoos. Like there has been zero deaths associated with cancer caused by tattoos um, and like 3 billion people that's 38% of the world's population that has a tattoo that is a massive sample size uh, I don't think we have a sample size bigger in the world bar maybe the uh, the COVID vaccine uptake you know there's um, there has been no research done by the ECA they've just looked at data points they made a blanket ban at bureaucrats in Brussels uh, many of which don't understand the tidal wave that they've caused. Uh, they've affected many family-run family industries. Um, a lot of tattoo shops around the world are family-run. They're small little businesses uh, which have been hammered by Brexit, uh, COVID, and then now this. Uh, no professionals in the industry were consulted as far as I'm aware either. One artist interviewed by RTE yesterday compared it to taking flour from a bakery. From a bakery. That is exactly it. Um, the two most important things in a tattoo shop are the inks and the needles. And I absolutely agree with regulation. And these inks, they've been developed in the likes of the UK, in the US. Uh, the US has massive regulations. It's very difficult to open a shop in the US. Uh, and they have been approved, just not in Europe. And I think that's indicative of a wider problem, uh, which is lack of representation in the industry in Europe. 
we don't have the lobbying power, we don't have the R&D power uh, that other industries would have. And it's, uh, there isn't really no one to speak up for us, unfortunately. Let's come back to the price, because you mentioned some of the new inks being twice as expensive as the ones that went before. How yeah. price sensitive are customers when it comes to tattoos? Um, it's, there, there's a lot of, um, obviously people do price around. Uh, it's a competitive industry, especially now. The, the industry over the past 20 years has gone from 20 shops in Ireland to over 200. Uh, so it's a case now of, obviously, people are paying for the quality of the work, and there's a certain limit that they're, they're willing to, to go for there. Um, we've most tattoo shops in Ireland have absorbed the cost uh, over the past few years of the increase in the price of uh, the likes of gloves and medical supplies. Uh, gloves, for example, have gone up five hundred percent, and they're like you can use five, six pairs of gloves uh, during the process of one tattoo. Um, we've absorbed that cost as much as we could, so the margins are getting slimmer and slimmer. Um, all our customers at the moment have been very understanding. Uh, we haven't put up our prices. Uh, we're trying not to. And I think it, it will come to a point where shops will have to evaluate um, the, the return on each tattoo uh, because there is a lot of costs associated with it. And the ink is, is one of the biggest ones. Well, just finally, Joe, you've given us the figure of three billion worldwide. But tell us a little bit about the local market because you've been operating in Portlaoise since June, I think. So yeah. give us some insights into what people are looking for. Um, well, people are just looking for tattoos, to be honest. Um, uh, like Our customer base varies from 18-year-olds all the way up to people in their 80s. We had a 70-year-old woman uh, came in yesterday morning for a touch-up, and she was worried about the ink. Uh, we actually we, we didn't think that it would be such a visible issue and it wasn't really up until yesterday. Um, we thought it was something that people in the industry would be worried about and customers wouldn't necessarily understand. Uh, but we ha actually have had people come into us asking us to hold back some inks because uh, a lot of people are halfway through big tattoos. Big tattoos are colours that are now becoming banned. Um, and this comes back around to what I said about the unproven inks. It's like if you, uh, if you buy two brands of paint uh, and you paint half your head with one and then the other half with the other not going to match no not yeah. a very attractive looking house and I imagine quite a stressful time if you're halfway through a, a major tattoo Joe I appreciate yeah. your, your time thank you very much for taking the call no problem thanks for having me that's Joe Rossa he's manager and owner at Old Fort Piercing and Tattoo in Portlaoise. Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, life after The Apprentice. As one Mullingar man appears on the programme, another will reflect on how it helped his career ten years ago. Why have plans for a €40 million Euro factory stalled here in the Midlands? Plus, your dreams analysed with mentalist Robert Williams. And who can make the funny man dance? Neil Delamere's partner is revealed for Dancing with the Stars. Now, Will, please wish Lisa Grennan a very happy birthday from Mum and Dad Delaney. It's done. 
And Will, the EU has just labelled red meat a cancer risk. So does that mean a ban on red meat down the road? Hard to say, don't have a crystal ball, but if you take tobacco, for instance, or alcohol, they are known to be linked with cancer, and while they are still on sale, there are some restrictions around them, and perhaps the advice or the culture towards red meat might change. Who knows? And final text, Will, I'm after dropping off my child at a school five minutes down the road. The teacher has just called me to say my child isn't allowed into the classroom because she's wearing a heavy coat and a scarf, and that is against school policy. I'm livid. I'm after going to collect my child, I'll bring her home. She's absolutely frozen. But my next call will be to the Department of Education. Well, let us know what they say. So some schools are being absolutely rigid when it comes to the uniform policy, and others are being far more flexible in the circumstances. So if that parent isn't on their own, if you've had the same frustration, then please let me know. Now, the Genrui brand of antigen test is to be removed from shelves in shops across the Midlands because the Health Products Regulatory Authority agrees with many complainants, and there have been over 500 complaints received so far, that there is an issue with the accuracy of the result you will get from these antigen tests. Dr Deirdre Ford is with us from Kayla Medical in Athlone. Morning, Deirdre. Good morning, Will. How are you? Very well, thank you. I believe you've had some issues with these as well, have you? I did. Um, I Actually, just before Christmas, I had a, a heavy head cold, I suppose, and runny nose. And I know that's one of the symptoms of Omicron, but um, you know, I've been very healthy all year round. So I, those um, general tests are quite, quite readily available where I live. So I went down and I bought a few of them. So... Um, the, I did two in a row when they came back positive and I said, oh my God, this is now going to impact the rest of, you know, my clinic for the rest of the week and any out of hours that I do. So I was able to luckily book my PCR test online. I got an appointment um, the next day, which was uh, which was quite quick, um, but it came back negative. And funnily enough, after I did my PCR test, when I came home, I went and I bought a different brand. Um, it's it's a German-made one. It's it's the long one in the in the navy and white. I can't remember the name of it. So I redid the test there, and it was negative. So mm. then I was very highly suspicious of the the one I had just taken. So did you take any action at the time? I didn't realise well that there was actually an issue. I just said. Mm, Maybe, you know, because I looked at the at the the instructions and it did say quite clearly, you know, look closely, even if there's a very faint line there, this is a positive mm. test. So I, I so I took that on board. Now at the same time I had three of my four children were positive with COVID. One was in London and two were in Dublin. So they had used a different form of a test and theirs had come back positive immediately, you know. So I was trying to ask them what they thought through photographs. Was it positive or was it negative? I didn't realise there was an issue until I heard it on the on the media yesterday. No, and you wouldn't, I suppose. People, no. uh, especially at that time of year with everything going on, you'd put it down to just one dodgy test, perhaps, or uh, just move on to the next issue. But now that we know, again, just to emphasise, it's the Gen Rui brand, G-E-N-R-U-I. If you have one of those in the house, bring it back to the shop where you bought it. It is not accurate. 
um, and we've had uh, reports of 550 complaints to the HPRA. Um, what does it say about how rigidly these products are assessed before they hit the shelves? I I have absolutely no idea how, how this is happening. Now, obviously, I don't know if the, are these available in the pharmacies because obviously I bought it in a supermarket. Um, so I don't know are the in the pharmacies or which brands the pharmacies are are actually um, using. But, you know, it, it, saying all of that now, I must actually make my submission to the HPRA as well because I do know that they're looking for people to come forward who have had false positives. So I'll be doing that today. Yes, and indeed, then maybe the scale of it will be revealed. Deirdre, mm. appreciate your time. Thank you for the call. My pleasure. I will. Dr Deirdre Ford from Kayla Medical in Athlone. Now, still on the agenda today, how to make your county the subject of a poem, and not alone a poem, but a video, music to go with it, a huge project undertaken in County Leash, which you shall hear about in the next 20 minutes. Also, we take you to the sad scenes in Castle Pollard as a young lady, 21 years of age, young teacher, laid to rest after a tragedy on New Year's Eve. And Life After the Apprentice, Stephen Brady appeared on the programme ten years ago and he found it to be a really, really good experience. But what did he do subsequently? That's what you never find out. They can win, they can lose, and very often they disappear into obscurity. But does it genuinely help? Well, that story coming up from 20 to 11. Patricia in Kilbegan has sent a picture of her... Antigen test, Genru, yes, that's the brand. Patricia, time to bring that back to the shop. A few people are asking, well, are you entitled to a refund? I would certainly make the case that you are. If a good is faulty, and it would appear these are, then you are entitled under the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act to ask for your money back. And don't take no for an answer. Although I am aware of a lady who lives between Roscommon and Athlone and sometimes she would stop in a supermarket, same uh, same company, different branch, and she might be in Athlone one day and Roscommon the next. And when she went into the nearest store, they said, well, actually, you bought it in Athlone, so you'll now have to go to uh, Athlone to get your money back, even though it was the same supermarket chain. Anyway doesn't apply when she buys clothes or any other products from them, so just on antigen tests they seem to have that restriction. Anyway, we'll move on. Because there has been tragedy, unfortunately, over the uh, New Year's weekend, and in Castle Pollard yesterday, a lady who died in a car crash was remembered as a community-spirited teacher who had a love of learning. Saoirse Corrigan was laid to rest after she and her partner Shane died in a two-car collision in Kells last Friday. A number of gifts were brought up during Saoirse's funeral mass to symbolise the most important parts of her life. Dara brings up the school diary, and in the school diary we read about the career path that Saoirse chose and her love of learning. Barry will bring up the green and yellow flag to represent her love for Ringtown and CFCW GAA clubs. Kean brings up some makeup, which Saoirse always took pride in her appearance. And Kayla brings up a mobile phone 
for all the Insta updates and selfies. Haha -ha brings up a pint glass to symbolise Saoirse's time spent working in Granny B's and McCormick's bar. Gemma brings up a photo of Saoirse and Shane who are together and happy forever. Father Oliver Skelly told those gathered in St John the Baptist Church in Whitehall that the teacher brought happiness to so many people. Although far from being a saint, Saoirse, the Irish for freedom, gave joy to her parents, family members, work colleagues and friends. This is as it should be. After all, Saoirse was a gift from God to all these people and to the world. While Orlean, the family and all of us regret the passing of one so young and in such a tragic manner, Saoirse is now free from the constraints of this mortal life. Father Paddy Moore, parish priest in Castle Pollard, will celebrate the life of Searship partner Shane Gilcrease this morning. He says the two communities are rallying around the families. The whole community here have been numbed with shock and uh, stunned by it and are filled with sadness and grief and they've responded very well in a caring fashion by supporting the families. I baptised Shane uh, 23 years ago, so... I've been very closely associated with his life in that way, you know. And that report by Midlands 103's Sinead Hubble. Hilda in Shinrome, thank you for your message. She wonders how many people are complaining the antigen tests are faulty just because they don't feel like isolating as a result of the positive reading. Well, that might have been the case in the beginning, you might would suspect, Hilda, but perhaps once the Health Products Regulatory Authority says take them off the shelf there's no smoke without fire when a body like that makes such a, a declaration you would think well um, if a child is not allowed to wear a warm jacket on a morning like this while the windows in the school are open surely it is tantamount to abuse asks James Importleach in which case yes parents should keep their children at home wasn't the point of buying the CO2 detectors for schools so that they would know when there was a need to open up the windows rather than having them open all of the time, that they could be a little bit more selective about when to create a breeze and when not to create a breeze, or am I wrong? Maybe not all schools have received the CO2 filters, but in which case you'd imagine the uniform code might be the least of all their problems. Is this an issue where you are as well? 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp, if it is. A few people have asked, by the way, where was that story about the fox and government buildings and the P in the Taoiseach's office? Well, not actually the Taoiseach's office, but in the department of the Taoiseach. A fox had broken in, apparently through a window at one point last year, and decided to urinate everywhere. The story is on page 13 of The Star, if you wish to read about it. Ken Fox has, under the Freedom of Information Act, discovered, actually, they spent €65,000 on pest control in government buildings, not just because of a fox, by the way, but because of rats digging holes. A dead rat was found in a car park, and exterminators had to be called in to deal with what was called overgrown vegetation in a courtyard, which was likely being a magnet for unwanted wildlife and needed to be removed immediately. There was also pigeon fouling 
in a basement area of Leinster House. And the risk goes on and on and on. But yes, watch for all the memes this week when it comes to pests in government buildings. Just after half ten on Midlands 103. Hope your day is going well. Hope the house is quiet if it's first day back to school for the kiddos. I hope there wasn't too much torture this morning getting them out of the door. Getting them out of bed was bad enough in my house, but... Ah, well, if we ever see a vacancy for a UN diplomat, I'm telling you, parents do apply. Now, various skills are needed when you appear on The Apprentice and you're staring down the barrel of Alan Sugar, who may be saying you're fired. A Mullingar man, Connor Gilson, and well-known in rugby circles, he'll be on the latest series, but let's turn back time, ten years and find out how much of a difference it really makes to your career. Stephen Brady was a contestant in the 2012 series. How are you, Stephen? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And, of course, also a fellow Mullingar man. Mullingar's been well represented on the series over the years. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Uh, My my man's from Mullingar, born and bred. My my, my dad's from Mullingar, and I was born in Mullingar myself. I moved across to England when I was a bit younger, but uh, I'm a Westmead man with a London accent. (laughs) Well... Cast our minds back, I seem to recall one episode where you had to go foraging in a junk shop to try and discover if there was anything of value there. What memories stand out to you from the series? As you know, what a brilliant experience, to be honest. Looking back now, as you said, 10 years, it's flown by. I'm I'm two kids down the line now. We've been married since as well. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, But, uh, yeah, you know what, looking back... um, like anything in life, with, with hindsight, you look back and there's a lot of positives to come from it, in all honesty. Um, the challenges, like you said there, with selling junk. And you can go from uh, being out on the street in the middle of London selling teddy bears to, to doing a pitch to an Amazon executive in the same day. And, and honestly, that's kind of how it works. So you can imagine the, the different headspace you're in from, from a minute to a minute. And then at the end of all that, you go into the boardroom to, to see Face Island Sugar for a full day. So we're... Uh, yeah, brilliant experience. I wouldn't regret a minute of it. I really hope Connor just goes out and enjoys himself and does himself proud, you know? When you think back as, as to the real pressure moments, yes, you're looking down uh, at Alan Sugar, potentially going to <laughs> wag the finger at you, but you're yeah. also aware that the entire country, in fact, several countries are tuned in as well to publicly experience your mistakes. So which is the more daunting? Oh, you know, you'd have to say, you, you obviously you forget about the, the cameras. It's one of those things. I watch it every year as we all just sit in at home and you think, geez, I could do, I could surely not make that mistake or this mistake. And obviously, once you find yourself in that situation, you're not doing the same things yourself because obviously the pressure is, is so, so high because you've got to make decisions on the hop and, and all the rest of it. But the fact that you know you're going to be sitting in that boardroom and what probably people don't recognise as well is the boardroom's actually a full day in reality. So obviously it's, it's obviously edited down on the show, so maybe a half an hour slot, but it's a full day in with, with Alan Sugar and, the, and obviously the people next to him. And, and you have to be obviously you're firing questions at you and you have to be there obviously ready to answer them, remember every single situation in great detail. And obviously, as you can imagine, um, you have to be well aware that your contestants around you as well are trying to obviously get, get forward in the process. So, uh, yeah, I'd have to say Lord Sugar in that example. The public opinion, all that sort of stuff, you kind of just have to deal with it. Be yourself and, and what happens, happens, you know? And is there genuine learning from Alan Sugar himself? There is. There is, to be honest with you, yeah. I mean, at a time, it, you're in the thick of it, but when you obviously leave the, leave the, the process, as they call it, yeah, you definitely look back and you think, actually, 
some of the things he said, it's hard to take at the time because obviously uh, you're very emotional when you're, you're getting fired, if you like. But uh, yeah, obviously he's successful, so he, he knows what he's talking about. So you do take a lot of that away. And in all honesty, it does open doors as well. And I hope for Connor, whatever his, his business plan is, he shouldn't be perturbed by the fact whether he goes out in week one or week 10. He's obviously got the personality to get in there in the first place. He's got his rugby background as well. So as long as he sticks to his principles, his values, um, and has the ability and the confidence to stand up for himself and, and speak his mind if he thinks things aren't going as they should, I think he'll be all right. But yeah, you have to deal from Lord Sugar's point of view. He's obviously got a history behind the success, so he should try and take some learnings from that for sure. Well, speaking of business plans, Stephen, you went on the programme trying to secure investment for the company that you now run. So tell us about it. Yeah, um, obviously the money would have come in handy, to be honest, in the early days, but we, we took the, the same plan. So we work with residential buildings, quite a few in Dublin, actually. Obviously, Ireland's booming at the moment, Dublin in particular. So all those residential blocks that you see popping up in the city um, and across cities in the UK as well, we provide services, which in the old days would have been going up and, and trying to find it on, obviously, on the yellow page or whatever. You go onto the platform, our app, and you book things like, personal training or dog walking or apartment cleaning so obviously the world's really really changed but from the comfort of your sofa in that apartment block in Dublin they're booking the services so we built that software out and thankfully uh, on the back of the, the apprentice it opened a few doors in the early days we've worked extremely hard as a team and, uh, and we're still going at it as, as you know you know you just get up and you try your best each day and, and thank god so far so good it's, it's going pretty well well, company's ping locker, and I see it described on the Apple Store as your concierge in your pocket. How big has the company grown? Yeah, that's, that's the plan, concierge in your pocket. Yeah, so business ping locker, we've been around for 10 years, as I said. Um, we're up to 25 employees now, which is uh, which is phenomenal. And luckily, all the people that we've brought into the business as well, I've worked with many of them in previous lives and jobs uh, uh, before I actually went on The Apprentice. So we've got a very, very strong team. And we're actually trying now to develop more into to Ireland as well, which is great. Obviously, from my point of view, I can get back home more often. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're ticking along nicely. And obviously, the way the world is with the pandemic and everything, people are generally doing more and more online. So from that comfort of your sofa, you should be able to, to book all the things you need through, through the Ping Locker system. So how have you changed in the 10 years since The Apprentice? Uh, I think you'd have to ask my wife that question, to be honest with you. She'd probably have a clearer idea. But in all honesty, when you're young, I'm sure Connor will have this when you're going in. You, you kind of think you're you're unbeatable, I guess, at times. And obviously, you go through the, the apprentice, if you like, and you learn so much about yourself because you almost have 100 experiences in the same time frame as you'd normally maybe have in five years because obviously it's in a very tight, tight space. So I'd like to think now I'm a little bit more pragmatic, a bit more relaxed about things in life because you know what? You can't control everything. You've got to get on with it. Try your best every day. As I said, and um, I like to think I've obviously matured as well. Having having a family and a couple of kids, that puts you in your place anyway, day to day. I heard you say at the top of the call there, just getting my son Dylan out of bed this morning was probably a bigger challenge than, uh, <laughs> yeah. than, going, in, than going into the boardroom, in all honesty, you know? And it gives you perspective as well, but uh, some some does. might suggest it tempers your ambition or it <laughs> dulls your fire or it makes you calmer. Do you, do you necessarily see that as a bad thing? No, no. I, I, at the end of the day, um, and as a West Mead man myself, I mean, the, the key point here from a values perspective, you really can't change what's inside you. So I expect Con to go out and and uh, and have that fire in his belly, the energy, apply the rugby skills that I'm sure he's got in terms of teamwork and all the rest of it. But he won't be afraid to speak his mind if he, if he has to, you know. So all that sort of stuff, you can't change what's inside you. Ultimately, what you do, hopefully, in life is you learn from your experiences, your mistakes, and and improve every day, you know, and apply that to your life and to your work and to your family and you won't go far wrong.
And is there finally any, I, I suppose, hesitation you would have about doing it all over again, given that the nature of television, they are going to select the <laughs> most embarrassing, excruciating <laughs> moments that you oh, yeah. never right. want to come up again, and yet they're there on the internet for all time. Well, this is it. This is it, of course. That's part of the course, I guess. Do you know what? It's interesting because obviously social media has really moved on in that 10 years as well. So I guess now it's probably amplified 100 times more because everything's literally with Instagram and all the rest of it is, is 100 times more amplified, as I said. But uh, you know what? I think you just have to go for it. Go for it. No regrets. Because at the end of the day, when you're lying there on your, on your deathbed, if you like, and you're looking back on your life, I'm sure the things that you you didn't do are the things that obviously if you could go mm. back, you definitely would have, you know, mm. so just go for it. And uh, what will be, will be, people are going to have their opinions uh, and that's the way it is. But uh, yeah, no, no regrets from that point of view at all. Stephen, it's been wonderful catching up with you. The best of luck and continued success with Ping Locker. We'll chat again. Listen, thanks. Thanks for your time. And I wish everybody over in Ireland the best. Stephen Brady, who was a contestant on the 2012 series. Can you believe it's that long ago? of The Apprentice and Connor Gilsonan shall be facing Alan Sugar in the boardroom very soon. It's tonight, actually. BBC. Make sure you're tuned in. After half past 11, any strange dreams, any recurring dreams, any nightmares? Well, if you want to make sense of them, or at least have a little bit of fun, Robert Williams, mentalist, shall be here from half 11. So send me on whatever has been bothering you or amusing you or... Well, something to just make us laugh. Will all that money spent eradicating pests in Leinster House? What a waste when they're still in there making a horlicks of the country's recovery. That's from Duncan in Shinron. Good morning, sir. And other persons suggesting, well, maybe they targeted the wrong rats. Again, I'm sure there will be no end to the jokes and to the one-liners about pest control being drafted in to Leinster House several occasions in 2020 and at a premium cost as well. Will, my granddaughter goes to a secondary school in County Westmeath where they are not allowed to wear anything over their uniform in class. But in one class, a teacher sat in her warm coat and her scarf and her hot water bottle on her lap. Well, if parents kept children at home, perhaps the minister and her cronies would sit up and take notice. That is from Tom, who is not impressed one way or the other. And uh, just a reminder, by the way, message from Joe, timely as it is. Don't forget to feed the little birds at the moment. A fist of oatmeal will suffice. Thankfully, today is not as cold as it was in the last few days, but... Yes, we even heard yesterday how some swallows have decided not to migrate to Africa because of the mild autumn and subsequent mild winter. And if they are still here, they are going to rely on maybe a little bit extra food that you have to spare. Now, in a few minutes, how a 40 million euro factory has stalled in its planning right here in the Midlands. But first... Leash is the subject of a new inspirational video poem which is being launched today by a collaboration of Midlands artists. Laura Murphy's latest work is In Leash I Fly Free and it's a tribute to the history, mythology and landscape of the O'Moore County. 
cinematographer Terry Byrne, musician Dale McKay and vocalist Rue Elizabeth collaborated on the project which was supported by Leash County Council and Creative Ireland. Midlands 103's Joe Caulfield has been speaking with Laura about how being home during lockdown inspired her. What's the best thing about Leash, they'd ask. The road out of it, I'd answer, like I'd never heard the joke before. The only county that doesn't touch another county that touches the sea. Landlocked in Leash, they'd laugh. There's so much they don't see. So it was written last year during lockdown when I was reminded I was landlocked in Leash. <laughs> and uh, I was on the sleeve blooms that we were it was when we had our restrictions and um, I had started to feel very, you know, closed in and feeling very sorry for myself like a lot of us were. And then when I had kind of no other choice but to settle into my surroundings and really open up to the beauty of the place that I live, I realised, oh my God, there's so much more to my home county than I had ever realised. So I was sitting up at the Rock of Dunamaze one day and I just connected with the place in a way that I had never connected in with it before. And from that, uh, the poem emerged, the poem which ended up to be a, a tribute to Leash and its beauty and its history, its mythology, which we all for some reason seem to know very little about, but there's a lot of. First to be colonised, first to fly free, first shot of the rising in 1916. The mental and prison standing on the very same road. Terror and trauma, humans interred, the demented, the broken, the brave, bad and bold. You recorded a video which encapsulates a lot of that, the, the beauty, the scenery, the history, the mythology of the county. And you worked with three other Leash artists in order to do so. Tell us a little bit about that. I had known from a couple of friends I had that I wasn't the only one that it was that was feeling into the magic of the county. So Terry Byrne, Sandy Middleton, Dale McKay and Rue Elizabeth, they're all friends of mine and artists based in County Leash. And we all are, we're working di different disciplines of art, music, poetry, uh, singing. Uh, but I all knew we shared this connection to Leash and we all connected to Leash in a mythological and, and, and a way that really honoured the beauty of the place. So I approached them all when I had the poem written. Um, I asked them to bring in their own individual creativity to really make it, you know, something that was a collaboration that was going to bring out um, a, a unified, colourful perception of Leash. So it wasn't just, you know, the, the perception of one person, but the perception of a few of us collectively looking at the county from different angles and expressing it through the, the medium of poetry, of videography and of music and song. So I think what we have now in the collaborative piece is a really beautiful tribute to the county that, you know, people from Leash can really uh, appreciate and, and, and love where they're from and be proud of it. And likewise, people who might not come to Leash so often or might think that there's not so much to the county can really look at this piece and appreciate all of the different dynamics. The Sleeve Bloom, Sleeve Blauma, the great mountain of flames where the great hero Fionn of the Fianna was born, raised and trained. Ireland's great warrior poet, pure, valiant and brave. He never died, they say. He sleeps and will awake again at a time of Ireland's great need. Now that report by Midlands 103's Joe Caulfield. A Midlands TD says it's inconceivable that a 40 million euro factory 
is waiting almost 18 months for a planning decision. Fianna Fáil's Barry Cowan says a statutory time frame should now be imposed on planning appeals to prevent the risk of large-scale commercial or housing projects collapsing. Permission for a proposed meat processing plant in Banagher was originally granted by Offaly County Council, but it was then appealed to onboard Planola in August of 2020. The Leash Offaly TD has been speaking with Midlands 103's Joe Caulfield about what he feels are serious consequences to such delays. I'm as in the dark as anybody else is. It's inconceivable, really, that board Planola find themselves with this on their desk still since August 2020. Everything about this project has, you know, has positive potential it's for farming, for the food industry, for the economy, and not just for the Midlands, but for the country at large. And holding it back like this, they're seen as nothing more than laggards, uh, and it needs to be called out. And Board Pranala needs to be accountable and held to account uh, in this instance. And there are many more too, and that's why I brought forward a bill during the course of last year that the support of the doll is yet to be brought forward by government that is to make its statutory requirement that it be a time period for board Pinal to make decisions because this and similar cases have impacted on residential development, which is absolutely unbelievable in the context of a housing crisis that we have presently, that an arm of the state uh, can be such a laggard, can be causing such a delay and having such an implication on not only industry and commercial activities such as this in an area and a constituency such as a rural one like the Shockley, which needs this and needs it badly, but also in the context of residential development. And I see that too in the case of judicial review system. And I'm aware of cases that are going on three, four and five years. And it's just unbelievable that this, in the time of national uh, residential crisis, that this should be the case. And I know a lot of rectification work was carried out in the planning system over the last 20 or 30 years because of failings of many politicians in the past. I accept and appreciate that. But it's time now for politicians to front up and face this situation and face uh, this obvious blockage that is there in the planning system as we know it now. And nobody is making hay out of this, only the legal system. And much hay and much money is being made by them by protracting uh, development uh, through a planning process which is far too long. What's the hold-up in that? Like, I, I know that it's a €40 million Euro development, so there is probably a lot for onboard Planola to consider. Yeah. What reasons are they giving? Well, there's no of, specific of... reason, only that they're not ready to make a decision, despite the fact that the local authority, that being Offaly County Council, could make a decision in a, in a matter of months, could assess the, the, the application in the context of the development plan, in the context of the issues surrounding environment, surrounding traffic, surrounding uh, impact, uh, and many other, you know, technical and engineering aspects of the application and could do so in, in a professional manner. And then you have one objection at that time, which was unsuccessful, and you have another one now, and this is the delay we are seeing and could well result in, 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 in a judicial review thereafter, as was the case with the cheese plant in Avonmore, which has gone on nearly five years. And in no, prob- no democratic process should... Uh, development applications be taken this long to be adjudicated on. And what it's, sort of accountability is there for Ambour Planola to come to a decision in a timely manner or account for what, what's taking so long in their deliberation process? Well, the bottom line, Joe, is there's no statutory uh, requirement for them to make a decision within a certain time frame. 
And that is ultimately what this um, legislation will do and should do and has to do. And until that is the case, we won't get the proper accountability or transparency that is necessary in a democratic uh, planning system. And that's very unfortunate as, as it stands presently. And that's why I, th- I feel it's absolutely necessary that it's addressed and addressed forthwith. So that's Barry Cowan speaking with Joe Caulfield. And if you're in favour of the plant or if you have your concerns, it's still a case of wait and see. No white smoke yet from on board Planola. Now, on a different note, let's get into some messages. 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. Lorraine, concerned to read this now. She says, from today, if you wish to visit a loved one in a nursing home, you need to have proof of an antigen test. New rules from the HSE. Now, my question is, if you can't afford to be buying these tests on a regular basis, surely they should be provided free of charge to the family of the resident. Now, perhaps somebody's getting their wires crossed at that nursing home, but what the Health Protection Surveillance Centre has said is the inability of a visitor to perform self-testing for antigen should not result in a resident losing access to that visitor if the visitor cooperates fully with all other requirements. So in that case, it's not designed to be mandatory. The health, uh, the nursing home isn't required uh, to ask for evidence and you are not required to take the antigen test. It is encouraged by the HSE. Absolutely encouraged. But it's not mandatory. If you want to read up again, the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, hpsc.ie, and they will put you straight. And one other message from a man in County Leash who was always baffled by the comment that Leash is the only county that touches a county that doesn't touch the sea. Have a look at the rivers. It's not true, he says. The River Barrow starts in Leash and ends up at Hookhead. Always baffles me, says James. Thanks, James. Now still on the agenda this morning. Can you make a funny man dance? Comedian Neil Delamere will be appearing on Dancing with the Stars. And who will have the rather high task uh, of trying to teach him what to do? Well, we'll be finding out who his partner will be in around 15 minutes. Also, an alliance of them. And indeed, have a little bit of fun. That's from half past 11. Time. Wars were fought with tanks and soldiers. And if a foreign power had blown up a building here in Ireland, they probably would have done far less disruptive damage, at least, than the HSE cyber attack last year. And increasingly, this is not just how wars are being fought, but how criminals undertake their enterprise. They can hack into the weakest link in any organisation. And the Irish Independent highlights today, for instance, how in a casino in North America, a device that was in a fish tank, innocently monitoring saline levels and water temperatures, it was a backdoor into the wider computer system which allowed the hackers access to customer records. There was also an example given in the article about 
the robot Hoover, that little chappy running around your floor, automated and using sensors and cameras to try and navigate the various obstacles. But the camera in one Hoover was hacked externally. And a cybersecurity expert tells the paper, you would be terrified if you knew some of the things going on. Well, he is Hugh McGowan. He's country manager for Ireland with Checkpoint, which is a security firm founded in Israel. Tell us a little bit more about Checkpoint, Hugh. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's uh, good to talk to you this morning. Uh, Checkpoint, I suppose, is one of the, the oldest vendors in, in the security game. The guy, who, the guy who founded the company, Gil Shred, is the guy who invented what's known as the modern-day firewall, uh, a key part of that. So it, it's we've continued on that route for many years. We started with firewalls, and now we cover all aspects of cybersecurity, from the little IoT, from little IoT devices to the, the largest network, cloud, etc., IoT being Internet basically. of Things, which increasingly is becoming features of homes all over the country, indeed all over the world. This it's comment you made, everything, everything that would be we would consider unmanaged, I suppose, is is what we would describe as IoT. Something that you don't that isn't managed by central central people. This comment you made that we would be terrified if we knew some of the things going on. Describe what you're seeing day to day. There's something different every minute of every day. There's something new that comes out. Most of the big stories are around the ones that we see that target enterprises, but there's a a lot more things that you would see. There are things that you would see, for example, I know the the comment that I mentioned was uh, in the article was about uh, Hoover being attacked. Now, that was something that was discovered by our team. They, they, They discovered it, they responsibly disclosed it to the vendor, and it was fixed before anybody else found out about it. But there are a lot of others out there. There's a lot of other devices, everything from your Alexa to baby monitors, et cetera, that can be compromised remotely. Um, a big challenge a lot of people have is, is that they get a device, they plug it in and it starts working and they don't do the simple things. They don't change the default passwords that everybody everybody is aware of. They don't change these things. And then these devices, they're connected to the internet and they can be remotely compromised. You you have to, I, I suppose the, the, the problem, in the security industry, there's a, 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 a theory of assume breach. Assume that you're always going, that they're going to get in somehow. And I suppose part of our job is to try and say, don't let them in. Try and secure it as best you can. But it's, a, it's everything, Will. It's everything from your mobile phone to your laptop, to potentially to your printer, to the, to the cameras that you use that are internet connected. If it's internet connected, it potentially can be breached. That's the scary part about it. Well, many of us might feel too small to be a target. Indeed, I think perhaps the HSE cyber attack last year may have dismissed some of that theory about Ireland being too small to notice. But is there a a certain validity that if you're living in a, a small house in the country, you've only got a few gadgets connected to your Wi-Fi, why should you be worried? These guys don't care who you are, where you are, how big you are, how small you are. It's just guys that are, it's guys and girls, et cetera. And there's people who've made a business around them. They're just running scripts. They're finding someone who is vulnerable and then they just attack them. And it might be something simple like they encrypt your laptop. You will, maybe that person who's in the country is running a business and maybe it takes them, it stops them being able to work for a couple of days until they can get someone to sort it out. And then you get the scale up to the size of the, the instance with the HSE and many other companies in Ireland. So it's, 
these people don't care who you are, where you are, what your business is. There's no rules that we, the Geneva Convention protects that hospitals, etc. don't get attacked in times of war. These guys don't care about rules like that. They just see a vulnerable target and they will attack it. It, do, it doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are. They, they, they will. All they see it is as a payday. If they target a thousand people and they're getting a couple of uh, hundred dollars off each one of them, it adds up very, mm. very quickly because all they have to do is click a button and it goes off and does all the hard work for them and they just sit there waiting for it to come in. So like, they're the on one in. side of the battlefield, Hugh, and mm. you and others like you are on the opposing side. So d- describe the sort of work you do to play catch up. It's a lot of it is research. A lot of it is is through the the building of innovative tooling that's able to capture what we call zero day threats. A zero day threat is something that nobody has seen before. Uh, a lot of the things that you have, like your antivirus systems, etc., they're updated every single day, and they're updated because people are looking at new samples. They're developing signatures, and a, sig- a signature is just a pattern matching technique to just say, this is what this is what it is. This is bad. Block it. And there's people, we have a couple of hundred people working in Israel and around the world, and they're, part of their job is to analyze these things when they come out. There's people who are building technologies for to stop the, as I said, to stop the zero day threats, the ones that we've not seen before, that we don't have the signatures for, and turn them from unknown into known, and they get shared and they get consumed by multiple different vendors globally. Google has a service called Virus Total, where a lot of vendors feed into, it, and that's shared with every vendor. So there's a lot of sharing of information. Not to the level that we probably would like, um, but it's it's the, there's a lot. There's just so much going on on a daily basis. A lot of what I do on a day-to-day basis is speaking with a lot of co- companies and helping them understand what the art of the possible, what they can do, what their potential gaps might be, and how we can help them address it, and what strategies we can bring them to help them address it. But it's 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 a difficult game. Trying trying to stay ahead is very very difficult. Because they only have to get it. You'll have heard this comment said multiple times before. We have to be right every time. They only have to get in once. Well, again, we hear a lot about virus variants for other reasons at the moment. But mm-hmm. I see you've compared the variants in computer viruses to COVID-19 on steroids with a shot of adrenaline in the back end. That's how quickly they move. So a hundred percent. The example that I gave, there was one that was recently to, to give you just the co- context behind it. The Apache is a web server. OK, there's an element of it called Log4j, which does logging. It's in 30 percent of the web servers worldwide. So when you are using your web browser and you're connecting to a website, there's a three in 10 chance that that is running an Apache web server. It's used on IoT devices, many multiple types of devices that was released before. There was a vulnerability discovered in that just before Christmas. And within, I think it was three to four days, there were 60 different variants of how they could breach it. So we're talking about four, maybe five when it comes to COVID-19. And I suppose it's why I made the analogy. In the IT and the cyber industry, these things can mutate very, very quickly. They can make the, the malicious actors can change, can change how these things attack very, very, very quickly. Which is, which is why I suppose I made the analogy that it, that it's like COVID-19 on steroids with a shot of it. In, indeed. They're constantly changing. We know with natural pandemics, there's a period and after which vaccines are developed and antivirals and so on and, and life goes on. You're in this game 20 years. Are we winning? 
Um, that's a very difficult question to answer. Are we winning? We're doing our best to keep ahead. We're doing our best to keep up with it. Um, as long as there are malicious actors, we'll keep trying to do it. There's, to give you an idea, there was in 2007, there was about 250 cybersecurity uh, vendors globally. There's now 4,000 plus. There's more adding by the day. So it shows it's very much a growth industry. Um, will we ever win? I don't know. I think it's more of a global a global challenge. I think it's something that the the high end, the the Joe Bidens of this world and the Vladimir Putins need to sit down and agree globally how these the people who perpetrate these attacks get attacked and attack it from that perspective as well. Uh, the vendors, like I suppose, the checkpoints of this world, we're doing our best to provide people with the tools, the resources, the, the threat intelligence to be able to protect themselves. We're trying to keep ahead, but it's a it's it's a challenge. As I said, they only have to be right once. We have to be right every single time. So it, it's it's not it's not simple. It's not straightforward. It's not easy, um, and it's very 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 much a growth industry on both sides of the fence. And finally, Hugh, of the organisations you work with, when you meet them initially, how well equipped are they? Everybody has gaps. Everybody has gaps. It's the, as, as I said a few minutes ago, there's the number of cybersecurity vendors that are popping up all the time. It's because there's a new area. There's a new area to focus on. There's a new element to focus on. There's different things that people need to consider that they haven't considered before, different avenues that people need to consider before. It's constantly moving. It's constantly changing. Hugh, I'm grateful for your time. Fascinating conversation. Thanks very much, Will. And thank you very much for taking the call. Hugh McGoran is country manager for Ireland with Checkpoint. He's originally from Roscommon, by the way. I should have mentioned that. What does it mean if you constantly dream of losing your job? Wow. Rose, we shall get to the bottom of that in around 10 minutes. First, time for Dancing with the Stars. Well, almost... Because we know Neil Delamere is a funny guy, but can he dance? He admitted on this show there aren't too many uh, transferable skills between the comedy circuit and the dance floor. So, Sinead, who has the task of sprucing him so up? So, Kylie Vincent is going to try and push Neil Delamere through his paces this year. Now, she's an expert at this and she was also paired with Father Ray last year. And the judges did comment last year and say to her that she was very good at highlighting his strengths and camouflaging his weaknesses. So she might be able to do the same with Neil. Indeed. I don't mean to uh, highlight the passage of time. It's two years. Actually, yes. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, two years since the last season. It was unravelling as COVID-19 <laughs> first came to our shores. Yeah, they had to do a lot of them without the audience in the end. But actually, Father Ray and Kylie made it through to the quarterfinals that year. They did. Not everybody <laughs> agreed it was on merit. It was perhaps a popular vote. So if Neil Delamere can do the same, we could be seeing a quarterfinal. Are you suggesting that Kylie gets partnered with the more difficult partners? No, I just think it's random luck of the draw normally. Um, but sometimes they get lucky that they're they're partnered with somebody who has the skills on the dance floor to make it to, to the finals and then other years they, they have a long road ahead of them. Who knows, maybe Neil will have some of those innate skills just yet to be discovered. <laughs> And then Jordan Conroy, we know from the rugby field, he's got all the physical attributes. 
Yes, so he's been partnered with Sulami uh, Chatwu, who's a new dancer on the series this this year. Yes, you asked her, that's how she pronounces her name, yes? That's exactly how she pronounces it. Good, right. And she comes from <laughs> a Latin discipline for the dancing. So we'll probably see some Latin moves from Jordan. So it starts this coming Sunday, RTE1, half past six, and we have a special reporter, I believe. We do. Father Ray Kelly, uh, who took part two years ago and from my parish of Oldcastle and from Terrell's Pass in County Westmeath, is going to be our reporter for the next couple of weeks to give us his opinion on the show. Well, he's obviously going to be very kind with his insights. Or is he going to be a bit of a Julian and harsh? He's, he's normally very honest. So, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what we get from him. And did I hear a rumour there may be somebody from the Midlands appearing in the yeah. first show, apart from the two aforementioned yes, gentlemen? Yes, apparently they needed some divine intervention to get the show up and running. So they've called on uh, someone from the Midlands to help them out. Really? Divine intervention? <laughs> yeah. Wow, you know how to keep it a secret, Sinead. <laughs> Top secret, Will. <laughs> right. no, I'm giving away any clues. You're making up what you will out of that. Do we know if there's a favourite? Have the bookies gotten in on the act yet? I haven't seen any favourites so, so far, but I imagine Jordan uh, Conroy will do very well because he's very competitive in his nature. So I imagine he's going to try and make it to the final. And I have a feeling perhaps Matthew from Love Island. Yes, he'll be another one that'll be try, trying to get to it. Uh, Missy Keating could be a dark horse. She She could be very good. Well, speaking of which, um, Nina Carberry, maybe. Exactly. There's a lot of potentials there th- this year. Um, Grania Shoiga as well. You imagine that she will be very elegant for the ballroom dances. So you never know. Sinead, thanks very much. Thank you. RTE half past six, RTE one on Sunday. Half past 11. Any dreams disturbing you, amusing you, puzzling you? Let's see, can we get to the bottom of... Well, some of these, and there's one from Rose that jumps out immediately. Dreaming of losing your job again and again and again. Well, the man to make sense of this, Robert Williams. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Will, and let me wish you and your listeners a very happy new year. It's very nice to speak with you again. Indeed, and many happy returns. Did you behave over Christmas? I did actually. Well, would you believe I had a couple of bookings and of course the landscape is so changed now. Obviously, we were all socially compliant and had to wear masks and all, which makes it a little bit more challenging. But um, it, it never ceases to amaze us how things have changed so dramatically in the last year and a half. And it's actually a good segue into the whole idea of dreams, because when you think about how much we've had to adjust and really look at this new world, it's, it's only obvious that when we dream at night, we'll have these bizarre dreams. Well, maybe again, that's linked into Rose and this feeling of insecurity or what she considered maybe a permanent in her life is maybe a little impermanent. She's losing her job. What's going on? I think you've summed it up really well, Will, in that regard. It is uncertainty. It's the whole seismic change in our lives for things we used to take for granted we no longer do. So if we just break it down a bit and have a look, and I know I've said this before, but maybe for the new listeners, what is a dream? What do we do when we dream? So essentially right now we're working on what's called the conscious mind. That's making all the decisions, the right thing to say, how to act and so on. But when we go to sleep at night, the conscious mind, this mind that we're on now switches off, the subconscious takes over. And all the subconscious is, is not a separate entity or anything like that. It's just part of our mind. 
but it's trying to make sense of the day. And of course, if Rose is having this kind of known feeling inside, that, oh, maybe my job's unstable or perhaps I'll be let go. Well, it's only obvious that will come out in a dream process because her mind or subconscious is actually taking that suggestion and making it play out in the dream process. Yeah. How does she, I suppose, switch it off? Can she make peace with... Uh, the fact her job is probably safe enough and she's not going to have this disturbing recurring dream. It's the latter, Will, and it's exactly what you've said. It's how do you get to the point where you no longer have this dream, whether it be a nightmare, a night, well, night terrors are slightly different, but a nightmare or a dream that you don't want to have. And it sounds simplistic, but it actually works. Before you go to sleep at night, you just command your subconscious that you're not going to have this dream. But I just said, there's a bit of work to do during the waking hours, which are to tell yourself, well, my job is safe. I'm very good at what I do. Nobody said I'm going to lose my job. But just before you go to sleep at night, you tell your subconscious, I will not have that dream tonight. My job is safe. I'm secure in my job. And believe it or not, in a very, very short period of time, that dream will cease. Because that's all it is. It's a suggestion we're giving the subconscious and the subconscious is just playing it out during the, the dream process. Sandra in Tullamore is well, she's a little puzzled about why she never dreams of her father. And he passed away in 2013. They were really, really, really close. And she dreams about other people who have passed, but not her dad. And she's wondering why. Believe it or not, Will, this is actually quite common. Uh, and I've heard it many, many times before. And unfortunately, what can associate with this is the feeling of guilt with some people because they feel, well... You know, maybe I'm not thinking about him enough or maybe he's because some people believe in the dream process. We get visitations and so on, but it's nothing for Sandra to worry about at all. And I think I've said this numerous times before when we do this on radio, we've got to be very cognizant that some of these dreams will be of quite of a personal nature. So I will obviously skirt around some of the issues. But suffice to say, Sandra obviously took this um, passing very, very serious. She said she was extremely close. And there is a part perhaps that's maybe suppressed. I mean, that's suppression. It's taking place in the mind where obviously you maybe don't want to think about things too often. Obviously, in the dream process, it won't play out. But it's, I want to reiterate to Sandra, and by the way, she can contact me off air if she wishes. But there's nothing at all to be concerned about. It doesn't mean that she didn't love her father. Of course, she did deeply. It just so happens that maybe in her mind, she's not going there too often. And obviously, in the dream process, as I said already, it's just a suggestion we give her subconscious. That's what plays out when we dream. Now, next one. Uh, from Goretta in Offaly, what does it mean if you dream all the time about needing a toilet, but each time the toilet has no doors or it's crowded with people trying to get in before you or people who are able to see you? Well, I'm smiling, Will, because believe it or not, Greta, just to make you aware, this is actually an extremely common dream. I, I From memory, I think it's the third most common dream that's been recorded. And... It's not maybe as graphic as what it sounds, but it is very much indicative of, and this is where it gets a little bit serious. It's very indicative of Greta maybe in her waking life having a lot of issues that she wants to unburden herself with, but she's not really doing that. She's not really imparting some perhaps troubling issues to her nearest and dearest. And she just really should have a stage in her life where she wants to, as I said, unburden herself from a lot of issues that's going on. And the very fact that she says other people are there, or the door's not open. It's just, if I was speaking to Greta on an individual basis, I would tell her whatever those burning issues are that she hasn't actually dealt with and the ones she needs to confide in people. If she does that, that dream will suddenly cease. Is that another way of saying she's got far too much shit on her plate? <laughs> I've always loved, Will, I've always loved how you succinctly put things and I would say yes. Fine. <laughs> Next, uh, not so much a dream, but Thomas asks, Will, I had my oil tank filled today, a thousand litres at 815 euro and revenue got 97 quid. Was I dreaming? 
No, you were not. Unfortunately, that's what the tax man does. Absolutely. Is Thomas here all week, Will? <laughs> Maureen in Mount Melick says she has horrible dreams, often about health, where she develops into um, a health anxiety. Now, she says when she was 11, this health anxiety first developed. She's 65 now, but it manifests in dreams even about Sam McConkie. You know, the professor Sam McConkie mm-hmm. mm-hmm. gave her a bucket of mashed potatoes, which were special potatoes to help her health. Oh, my goodness. You know, Unpack well, I, that think I, I think I mentioned to you before that one of the things that I think any professional dream analyst should do is really listen to the language of the dream. And everything you've just said there is really it sums up exactly what's going on. And although it's a dream, what Maureen's saying she's having, it's a little bit more than that. And again, I, I'm not qualified to speak with this too much. But what I would say is there's, as we've mentioned already, the word, there's a lot of anxiety going on. Um, there is, of course, a point, as I said, if you tell your subconscious to stop having this dream, it'll possibly happen. But I think there's a little bit more deeper than that. It's something that Maureen's had from a very young age. And maybe just maybe she should go and maybe talk about it because there seems to be a lot of anxiety going on. And it, it can sometimes become quite a distressing dream and one that makes her feel a little bit anxious throughout the day. So I sense maybe it's a little bit more in the dream and just maybe catch, catch that side of it and she'll do OK. I'm just relieved that I'm not the only one having unusual dreams from time to time. Sometimes you think there's something wrong when they become so bizarre and so vivid. Well, do you know, Will, actually, just on that point, and I know I mentioned already about the, the big changes in our lives, and of course that's playing a huge part in the way we dream, but it was actually Sigmund Freud that said, the more bizarre the dream, the more space in reality. And when you think about that comment, you think, wow, that's a bit disturbing, but really it isn't because it lends into exactly what I said. The dream process is all about the subconscious mind trying to create and make sense of the day. And sometimes, depending on your imagination as well, those, that imagery and those characters that you develop in the dream they can become the most bizarre and, and somewhat crazy dreams you could ever have. But you see, there's another point I just want to make. It's a little bit of a distinction that sometimes people miss out on. That is, people often say, I had this dream last night. As if this dream happened to them. Well, I would say 98% of the time, it's not the case. You create the dream. So it's not something that's happened to you. It's something that you've done. And once you keep that in mind, you'll realize that you're in control of lots of this. Well, does it ever happen that sometimes your dreams behave like a mini-series? So you've had one now and you might have a follow-up in six months. Yeah, it can do. And, and oh, the bottom line there is it's all about unresolved issues. Issues you haven't resolved, issues that are still going on in, as I keep talking about, the, the waking hours. Of course, if they're not resolved, the subconscious. You see, again, I'm, I'm cognizant, Will, that when you say the subconscious, for some people it sounds like it's something that enters you at nighttime or something that is separate to us. It, it just isn't. It's just two parts of the mind. And we all have, obviously, two sides to ourselves. We have our professional side, we have our personal lives. But if you're not dealing with the issues, whatever they may be, they can be minor, they can be major, the subconscious, in other words, you, yourself, me, myself, will think about this while we're sleeping. And that's what projects then in the way, in the sleeping hours. So the subconscious is really just part of us that is an extension of our mind that will alert us to facts that are going on in our waking hours that we need to address and deal with. And that's really, I suppose, in the most simplistic language you can make it. Well, I remember talking to a psychologist and they suggested that when you have a problem, you might give it a little bit of thought and then you try and put it out of your mind and you move on. And we've all had then those eureka moments where we're doing something completely different and all of a sudden, hey, presto, up comes the solution to our problem and we weren't even aware we were thinking about it. So Mm -hmm. there's your subconscious mind. Precisely. And that lends itself perfectly into the whole idea of and I'm very well aware that a lot of people listening would think this is all gobbledygook and that's fine. But I've, I think we know each other well, Will, and you know, I've, I've always taken a standpoint that 
there's always reasonable explanations to this, apart from a small percentage, which are precognitive. We spoke with them before, but I'm not here to say that all dreams are of a mystical nature or anything like that. But I am saying sometimes we need to actually consider our language when we speak about things like dreams. For example, what you've just said, how many times have we heard it before? We've used it ourselves. Oh, I'll sleep on it. It's like a common phrase that we just use. Mm. But think about what we're actually saying. I'll sleep on it. I'll go to sleep. I'll let the subconscious take over. And lo and behold, as you correctly said, the solution can be found. And there's many, many examples of that in my personal life, I'm sure in your life. And it's been recorded when people gone to bed at night, they've said, OK, let me just think about this dilemma. Go to sleep, wake up the next morning with the solution. So that's why I find this whole subject so fascinating. What is this thing that we do when we dream? And how is it that some of the most fascinating results can come out in the back of it? And that's what has maintained my interest for all these years. The danger can be an anxious mind stays awake yeah. with the problem and isn't That's able like, to confine it to the subconscious and isn't able to go to sleep. So there is a, a slippery slope yeah. sometimes for some people. There is, Will. And just a final point on that, and you're quite right. What can happen there, of course, is you can start making rash judgments. You won't be able to sleep in it. And the whole point there is you won't allow the subconscious to actually find a solution. But it's a marvellous point you made. I've found it even in the waking life. You say, OK, I'm not going to do that now. I'll think about it some other stage. And as you said, just, well, supposedly out of the blue, the answer comes. Again, it's this wonderful thing we call the mind. Claire wonders what it means to dream of a washing line when there isn't enough room for all of your clothes. And it's always very stormy. Yeah. Well, this is very much, again, and I don't want to be sound too repetitive, but it is a case of if we think of what's actually happened to the washing line and we know the old phrase about washing your air, washing your linen in public and all this kind of stuff, I would suggest, and again, I'll, I'll tread loosely here, but Claire probably has a lot of issues going on in her life at the moment. Some of those issues, perhaps, well, I would imagine they are unresolved otherwise she wouldn't be dreaming about them. But there's also some other issues perhaps that are not her own, but she's trying to solve for other people. It's almost she's one of these people, one of these lovely people in life who try to take on other people's burdens and try and fix them. Hence the visualization of the washing line and not enough room to put on even more clothing. So I would say to Claire, Claire, you sound like a really nice lady, which I'm sure you are. But remember, be good to yourself first and then other people can come after that. Robert, stay there if you don't mind. RobertWilliamsMentalist.com if you wish to look him up, by the way. A few people have asked how to find him. If you have a strange dream you can't make sense of, or maybe it's funny and you're wondering again, what does it mean? Now, an unpleasant dream and a very sensitive one for Robert Williams to try and unpack. So this is a listener, Robert, who lost their brother last June and unfortunately he didn't have a pleasant passing. I look yeah. after his estate and I dream of him regularly coming to my house looking for his keys because he wants to go shopping. And I often wake up mid-dream, but when I go back to sleep, it picks up where it left off. Sadly, I lost my mum in November, but I never dream of her. Yeah, and Will, your opening comments are quite right, and I, I know I'm probably repeating the point, but it is worth repeating. There's only so much I will comment on dreams like this because they're of an extremely personal nature. Um, just to say, in my personal life, unfortunately, I can relate to that dream because I've had some real tragedy myself. So not only am I speaking as a dream analyst, I'm speaking as somebody who knows exactly what this caller is speaking about. And the one last thing she should do is try and separate why she's dreaming about her brother against why she doesn't dream of her mother. In many respects, it's like the earlier caller where we spoke about sometimes we suppress these thoughts and obviously they won't play out in the dream process. And all I would say with that, Will, is obviously, and you mentioned that the poor guy didn't have the best of passings. This lady, of course, has this on her mind constantly. So when she's sleeping at night, of course, it's going to play out. And it's going to play out to the point where even when she goes back to sleep, she's still thinking about it. So 
this this guy is on her mind quite a lot. Of course he is. And all I would say to her is that as time moves on, she will find one of two things will happen. Either the dream will change in, in its content in terms of how the dream plays out, or in many respects, the dream will cease altogether. It's not anything for her to worry about, but I would say to her, of course, it's indicative of the lovely person she is and that she had such a close connection to her brother. So um, that will sort itself out in time. The most important aspect I want to stress is don't get stressed about it. It will play out itself. Let's move on to Lynn. A dream I've had, actually. She says, I often dream of losing my child in a shop or near water. Yeah. And this, again, well, you've said it as any parent would have a situation where one of the biggest fears, one of the biggest dreads is the whole idea of their children going missing or harm coming to any of their children. This is a dream that I've actually began to hear more and more of since March 2020. And of course, what happened in March 2020? We started the whole idea of the pandemic and Mm. COVID. Not to say we had, I haven't had those dreams before. I have, and it's generally, would, I would have found it when back at the clinic years ago, it would have been with newer parents, people with their first child and so on. So it's obvious what's happening. But it's a strange kind of quirk of this time, Will, that since the pandemic, people have really, parents have really kind of become overly protective of the whole idea of the virus and the children. So that's really what it is in many respects. And again, it's, it's representative of this lady being, I'm sure, a tremendous parent. And quite simply put, her biggest concern, her biggest fear, or one of her biggest fears has been played out in the dream process. Why? Because she thinks about during the day, she sees the love she has for her child. And obviously we all have these thoughts. She might think, oh God, I'd hate if mm. anything happened to him. So there we go. Subconscious takes that suggestion and plays out in the dream. Nothing to worry about at all. Perfectly normal. Okay. Yes. What does it mean when you dream of your own death? Oh, well, that's, it's not as literal as it sounds. And it's all about rebirth. Believe it or not, it's actually the opposite. And it's actually quite an empowering dream because it actually tells the dreamer, the person who dreamt the dream, obviously, that there's a little bit more they can do either to reinvent themselves or even to challenge themselves a bit more. It generally happens with people, Will, who are a little bit feeling stagnant in their life. Things aren't going the way they want them to go. And again, there's that subconscious command in us or suggesting to us you know, to, to challenge ourselves in different aspects. Perhaps in many respects, it has to do with feeling you're stuck in a rut. And I would have got this dream from many people who worked in a job for maybe a decade or more and felt, oh, is this all there is? Subconscious, which of course is us ourselves, is telling us, well, why don't we try something different? You know, liven things up a bit. It's nothing to do with the, the dream or the person dying. It's got to do with them maybe looking at a different aspect of their life where they can challenge themselves. Very good dream. Lorraine says she has a recurring dream where her friends are all around but it's mainly set in her parents' house and her deceased father is there at all times. So she's wondering what's the symbolism telling her? Well, the major symbolism there is the house. Uh, I'd be interested to know as Lorraine, a parent, because whenever we dream of a house, particularly female dreams of a house, a house that we're familiar with, it's got to do with maternal instincts. Now, again, I'm, I'm not privy to that information, so I don't know. But in terms of her father, there's a, there's a few things going on in the dream. Well, the main thing in the house is maternal, particularly the female dreams of the, the family home or a home they're familiar with. And obviously the aspect of her father, if he's passed on, of course she thinks. And the other aspect, what was well, there's people talking about her to her friends. Is that correct? Well, her friends are around. I don't get the sense there's anybody talking about her. It seems celebratory or whatever. But yes, her friends are most certainly in her presence. Yeah, well, and again, we'll get into the minutiae of it too much. But when we dream about, well, in this case, I presume our friends may be a mix of male and female. When we dream of the opposite sex or even the same sex, all we're doing is we're taking traits that those friends have that we would like to take on board. And believe it or not, that's the subconscious telling us about those nice little traits that our friends have and how maybe we could bring them into our life. So it's, it's quite a complex dream in one regard, but the major part of the dream is the home, the house. And as I said, it'd be interesting to know as the caller a parent. And if she is, that would explain what the maternal aspect of the house represents. 
All right. Speaking of the opposite sex, Jack, who says in brackets, not my real name, (laughs) dreams of a work colleague and they're having an affair. Now, he doesn't have any intention of acting on this in real life, but the persistence of it makes him think. Okay, Jack, your secret is safe with us. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) There's a couple of things in that, Will, and it ties into what I said the last time about being repetitive when you dream with opposite sex. There's obviously traits, characteristics of this female that Jack actually likes. But I'm sorry to tell you, Jack, even though it's not your real name, there's also a part of your mind who finds this lady quite attractive. And all we're doing in when we sleep is we, we play out that in our mind. So, uh, of course, you're not going to act upon it. It's nothing to be concerned about. I'm sure you're probably a married man, hence you're not giving your real name. But the fact is, that's only you taking aspects of that female characteristics that you'd maybe like to take on board for yourself. But there is another aspect. Of course, you probably find this lady attractive, but it's only a dream. That's all it is. <laughs> I'm sure he's wondering, I wonder if my mind is picking up on subtle cues that I'm not aware of. Maybe I should have a chat with her over the water cooler. Who knows? No, don't do that, Jack. Don't do that. Tom in Tullamore has a dream about getting raw fast food. And also, allied to that, members of his family who are deceased are eating it with him. So raw food and dead relatives. What's the connection? Very, very, yeah, it's a very interesting dream. And we'll, again, there's a, there's a few parts that we need to speak about. The dead relatives, self-explanatory to a point. He obviously dreams and thinks about these, sorry, he thinks about these people. So obviously they come out in the dream process. Now I'm conscious to say this, Tom, and I'm not here to offend anyone. But that dream in terms of the raw food and the food and the eating of food, and particularly with the dead relatives, let me say it like this, Will, and again, I'm saying it in a very brushstroke, broad, there might be something going on with Tom's diet in terms of perhaps he like all of us maybe over COVID, put on a few pounds. He might be looking to see, can he change up his life a bit, get a little bit more fitter, maybe lose a few pounds. And that concept of eating amongst people who have since passed on, it might be a thing that was going on for a little while. So again, Tom, if you want to contact me off air, feel free to, and I'll develop that a bit further for you. But nothing to worry about, subconscious telling you, maybe you can get a little bit fitter, like maybe we all can. All right. Next, from Melissa, who says her dog in real life is kind, gentle and very placid but she dreams more than once that the dog becomes vicious barks shows its teeth and she's wondering again is her mind trying to tell her something yes her mind is telling her something that she's probably aware of uh two parts of the dream we dream of animals sometimes the animals will in the in the dream concept can replace humans uh, the, the teeth shown is quite significant because when we see teeth in a dream, irrespective of if it's our own or somebody else's, it does tend to mean that our confidence has been undermined. I'm going to say, Melissa, and let me qualify this by saying I'm not casting aspersions on anybody, but there could very well be somebody in your waking life who is undermining you and who's maybe making you feel less confident than you should. And that's what that dream is really representative of. But as I said already, if you want any more information on it, feel free to contact me. All righty. Uh, Next one. I'm going for a walk with my boss and we get lost in the crowd and I can't find him again, but I need to return his car keys. He gets cross and wonders why I abandoned him. Very, very interesting, Will, because that's obviously it's a dream all about career. I would say that this caller is somebody who is probably considering some form of a promotion within the job. Now, let me just develop that a small bit for you. She's with the boss, the, the boss, she loses the boss. The keys are significant because the keys are actually opening up and unlocking new new ideas, new mm. ways. 
And the boss, again, it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes on the, on the media to try and say stuff and be kind about it. The boss may be quite a demanding individual. So one of her fears is, oh, he, he or she is going to take the head off me for losing them. But I would say this to the caller. I would say there's an opportunity around in the workplace that's going to surface, I'd imagine, where she can possibly get a promotion and maybe even move on away from the boss and have a situation where she's given more responsibility in the job. So again, it's quite an empowering dream. And if it's something that the caller hasn't considered, I would suggest very strongly she would look and see where opportunities are because no doubt opportunities are abound. Robert, how did you learn all this? You know, well, it's a, it's an interesting uh, question and I know we don't have much time, but um, my late mother was a prolific dreamer. She was somebody who was a, what I would call a precognitive dreamer who had dreams that literally came true and I would have been the same. So at a very young age, well, I, I studied all this stuff. At a very, very young age, I was reading the stuff from Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, but it just, I didn't get it. It's way, way too deep. And what I did was I took it back up again in my early 20s, started to study and develop it more. And really from there, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it. That's what I've done in all parts of my life. I go for things and I set up a small clinic and I just went from there after reading and doing Alan's for thousands and thousands of people. I'm just at a point where thankfully no dream has ever come to me that I'm not able to figure out. So I suppose self-study and self-discipline got me there. Sounds like a challenge for the next occasion you're here. In the meantime, Robert, (laughs) how can you be reached? Thank you, Will. It's uh, robertwilliamsmentalist.com and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Take care. Robert Williams. Now, that's where we leave it this morning. Thank you, Sinead Hubble, for putting it all together and thank you for keeping me company as well. Uh, Tomorrow, it's Friday, tomorrow. The week has flown by. So, Friday panel on the way and um, much more besides. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Chat to you soon. Bye-bye.